All right, page 13 and lesson three. So we've got this week and next week of our newcomers class. And uh, then after that, I will say at the end of next week's class, it's up to you what you want to do. We don't come after you. We don't hassle you. Uh, we just give you the information. And then if you have any follow-up questions, then don't hesitate to let me know. And if you have any questions as I go through any of this, don't hesitate to get my attention. I'll do my best to answer them, okay? But we have looked in the first two lessons at the fact that we have sought to be an intentional church. That was the title of lesson one. Intentional in our mindset, intentional in our structure, intentional in our schedule. And then last week, uh, we looked at the uh, fact that we try to be a, a healthy church. And I actually told you to go to page 13. Excuse me, I didn't finish I didn't finish last week because we had a shortened session together. So uh, I take that back. You need to turn to uh, page 11. Page 11. And we'll pick up where we left off with looking at the seven vital signs of a healthy church. And then hopefully we'll get to uh, lesson three. So we'll have to make some tracks here. So hang on as we as we go. But on page 10, we started the seven vital signs of a healthy church, the first of which is that we seek to be a gospel-driven church and then a vision-motivated church, but we left off with uh, a church that engages in authentic worship. And I talked about, bottom of page 10, that worship has to be God-centered and word-centered and regulated, set apart, that is, sacred, and then corporate. That's where I left off, corporate. And by corporate, I mean worship is congregational. And by that I explained, we mean that worship should involve everybody. It should involve the entire congregation. And that is why we don't encourage individual expressions of worship. Because when we come together, it's us worshiping corporately congregationally. And I said last week, there's nothing wrong with somebody yelling out amen. There's nothing wrong with somebody raising their hands while we're singing. So there's nothing sinful or wrong about any of that. Uh, but we, our leadership doesn't encourage it, and it's for this reason, it's for this principle, that uh, congregational worship is not individual worship with other people around. So I'll say that again. It's not individual worship with other people around. And a lot of times that's what it is for people when they go to church. It's really my individual worship and other people happen to be around. And in fact... One of the things I need to do, they think, is to kind of shut people out. I close my eyes. You're doing your thing. I'm doing my thing. <clears throat> so we're all having our moment with Jesus individually, but it just happens to be other people around, which raises the question, raises the question, why are these other people around? If it's just your individual moment, if it's individual worship, you do that Monday through Saturday. When we come together, it's us together worshiping the Lord. So we try to stress uh, a congregational altogether expressions of, of worship. And then bottom of page 10, last thing that we didn't get to was worship must be holistic. And that word holistic is sometimes spelled with a W, and that might make it clear. We mean the whole person. So worship, if it's going to be uh, fully biblical, should engage the mind and the will and the, and the emotion. Now, practices that come out of that, top of page 11, are if we are going to be God-centered then we're going to seek to extol and emulate the character of God in word and deed in the way we do our worship. We don't want to do anything worldly in our worship because it's supposed to be centered on God. 
So therefore, our worship should be holy. Uh, we don't want to emulate the world in the way we go about our, our worship. We'll seek to accurately communicate and apply the Word of God if it's going to be word-centered. If it's going to be regulated, then we're going to utilize the regulative principle. I explained what that is last week, that we won't do anything in our worship services that is not prescribed in the New Testament. And then if it's sacred, set apart, then we're going to be guest-sensitive, but if you care to jot this down, not guest-driven. There's a huge difference between being sensitive to guests and being driven by guests. We don't want our church to be driven by the tastes and desires of those outside the church. But we do want to be, as a matter of just common Christian grace, sensitive to the presence of people who are not Christian or people who are not churched and they're not familiar with our church. And so we try to do things to to help uh, folks with that. And then we'll seek to engage the whole person, mind, will, and emotion in in worship. All right, so seven vital signs of a healthy church, gospel-driven, vision-motivated, authentic worship, and then on page 11D, effective preaching. Now that point used to say, instead of effective preaching, it said powerful preaching. That a healthy church has powerful preaching. And I changed it to effective. And the reason I did that is because for many people, powerful preaching is about the power and the charisma of the preacher. A lot of times when we talk about powerful preaching, that's what we're that's what we're talking about. Wow, that guy's powerful. That was powerful. And often you get that kind of thing because somebody is dynamic. And I don't this may sound weird, but I don't want to be that. Um, I don't know whether I could be that if I tried. But even if I could, I don't want to be. And there's a there's a reason that I don't want to be. I don't want the effect to be because of me. I want it to be because of the message. I want it to be because of the Bible. And so that means for the preacher, you're a part of the process, obviously. But you want to get out of the way as much as you can and let the the power of God's word rather than you know the power of your personality persuade people. So sometimes, I'll just give you an example, like sometimes I'll quip, I'll you know, say something that's supposed to be funny, uh, but not that much. And uh, I do, I mute that on purpose. Uh, I could probably do it more, and it would be okay. But the reason I don't do it a lot is because, one, I could get carried away with that. Uh, that's a personal thing. But also, uh, I don't want, as I say, my personality to be the, the, dominant, the dominant thing. I've only heard one other preacher actually say this, which scares me. But some of you might know who Mark Dever is. He's the pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church, which is four blocks literally from Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. I've been to his church. It's a terrific church. He's a great guy. Uh, and I attended a seminar that he held for preachers. And he said that, you know, he says, you know, in my personal interaction with people, I have a fairly keen sense of humor. But in the pulpit, I don't pull that out a lot because I want to mute that a bit so that we can focus on, on God's word. So effective preaching, not not powerful preaching. A sermon without application is simply a lecture. People might applaud our delivery, our diligent study, our erudition, but if they fail to appropriate the truth in their daily living, we failed in our objective. Our purpose is to communicate the truth. You haven't communicated until somebody know one can understand it and then knows what to do with it. So that's what has effect, and that's what I mean by effective preaching. 
the famous passage in the Bible regarding Scripture itself is in 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now note, the purpose of Scripture is not doctrine. Notice what that says. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for, and then it gives these four things, teaching, rebuking, correcting, training. It's useful for those things, but what's the purpose? The purpose is the next verse, verse 17, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So even this most famous passage in the Bible about the Bible tells you that the purpose of God's Word is for people to put it into practice, for it to be applied and for you to actually do something with it. So if we preachers get the idea that all we're doing is is transferring information and we're just uh, telling people what the Bible means, then we haven't done our job because we tell them what it means, to be sure, but we do that for the purpose of seeing them put it into practice. And that's what then I mean by effect, applying it effective. It has effect in someone's life. All right, fifthly, a healthy church engages in servant leadership servant leadership. Perhaps the clearest job description for a pastor is in Ephesians 4, 11 and 12. Christ gave some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers to do this, prepare God's people for works of, of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. And then that word prepare is used in a number of passages in the New Testament in different ways to give you an idea of what that means to develop leaders in the church. But practically, Here's what that means for you. If you were to decide to join CBC and become a member here, then this idea of servant leadership uh, affects the way we choose leaders in the church. So how do we how do we choose leaders? We have uh, our church is what's called a congregational government. So the congregation is the ultimate voice of authority. Uh, with human authority within the church. The congregation can get together and vote to get rid of me. The congregation can get together and vote to do whatever it wants. The congregation can actually can get together and vote to do whatever it wants, even if you know I don't want them to do that. Presumably, if they're getting rid of me, I probably wouldn't want that. Um, or if the deacons don't, don't want it. So it's, it's congregationally governed. Now, Obviously, you don't have that happen very often, and if you got that happening very often, you've got a real problem in your church where you've got people in the congregation who are going outside the leadership structure to, to get things done, but I'm simply telling you that could happen uh, because the ultimate human authority in our church is the congregation. We believe that's what the New Testament teaches. So it's congregationally governed, but it is uh, pastor and deacon-led. So we lead it, but the congregation ultimately is the governing authority in the church. So in order for us to do anything, we have to come to the congregation. Uh, Let me take that back, to do anything. To do anything that affects the whole congregation. We come to the congregation to get approval. So if we're going to buy something, you know, if we're going to get, if we buy a building like we did here, we have to get the congregation's approval. The leadership doesn't make that decision on its own. It recommends and then the congregation either approves or it doesn't approve. The congregation also approves who the leadership is going to be. 
So any pastors that are brought in have to be approved by the congregation. Any deacons that are brought on have to be approved by the congregation. Now, who would these potential leaders, pastors and deacons, be? They are people who have to meet the qualifications given in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus chapter 1. In those two passages, 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, you're given the qualifications for pastors and for for deacons. So right now we only have me as our one pastor slash elder. Those are interchangeable terms in the New Testament. Uh, We are bringing on another staff member, Larry Castle, Emma's dad, is starting uh, on July 1st. Um, And he's initially going to be part-time with us and part-time in his current job. And then eventually we're looking to bring Larry on full-time and for Larry to come on to our pastoral staff. But even with Larry, Larry's been here for all these years, and everybody knows and loves Larry, there'll still be a vote for Larry to come on to pastoral staff. I already know the outcome of that vote because everybody knows and loves Larry, but nonetheless, there'll be a vote for that. And then he'll come on as a, as a pastor. And then next year, we're looking to bring a third guy as an elder as, as well. But all of that has to be voted on by the congregation. So that's for, for pastors. For deacons in our church, they too have to be voted on. And for both pastors and deacons, in order for us to ensure that they meet the qualifications of Titus 1 and 1 Timothy 3, here's how we do it. We've got an evaluation form that is based upon those passages. And I think there are 19 qualifications given in those two passages. And we take those 19 and we ask individuals to whom we give that evaluation form to rate this person based upon those qualifications. Now, who do we give the form to? We give the form to people that have served with them in the church and people who know them outside of the church. Now, that outside of the church piece is important because one of the qualifications is that a pastor, a deacon, has a good reputation with outsiders. So people that they work with, because you know that a person could be one thing on Sunday and something else Monday through Friday at work, right? So we give that form. They, these people send it back. It's confidential. The individual doesn't see who's responded how. And then they are rated according, according to that. So we've been using that system for years. And it's resulted in us uh, having, we haven't had a single rogue uh, pastor or deacon in our 15 years. And I thank God for that. Because I'm here to tell you, uh, havoc is wreaked upon God's church when you don't have the right kind of leaders when they don't meet the qualifications of Scripture and when churches don't take the time to make sure that they meet those qualifications. Now, some of you have been in churches where they don't take this very seriously. The way people are elected into leadership is there's a Sunday night business meeting. People come to church for Sunday night service. If you had Sunday night services, that's when they had the... And, and then they get to the church and then they forget, oh yeah, that's right, there's a business meeting. So nobody's been praying about this. Nobody's been thinking about this. Oh yeah, there's a business meeting. And one of the items of business is we got to elect a couple of deacons. And so then some names are thrown out or people are asked to just write some names on a sheet of paper. And, you know, everybody just sort of looks around. Oh, yeah, you know, Joe. Joe's a good guy. Let's put Joe down here. Okay? And so then Joe gets nominated, but Joe hasn't been vetted according to the qualifications of Scripture. 
And then as a result, you get guys who are likable, often businessmen. Uh, Joe's a good, he's got a good business at it. You know, he'll, he'll know how to take care of the money of the church, so let's put him on. Well, okay. But we don't know, if we don't know Joe's business practices, if we don't know uh, Joe's uh, values, you know, is money the most important thing to this businessman named Joe? And sometimes that's the case. And then you get a guy like that on your deacon, deacon board. So we go out of our way to make sure that the people that are deacons and pastors at the church meet those qualifications. Together, the pastors and deacons constitute what's called the leadership team. And so here's the way our practically our structure works. According to 1 Timothy 5.17, it says elders, 1 Timothy 5.17, elders direct the affairs of the church. That's what it says. So the pastor's elders are to lead. They're to set the agenda for the church. But then that agenda is, is run through the deacons. So I have monthly meetings with the deacons, and I'll propose an agenda. The deacons can add to that agenda. But then we get together and we go through, these are the things we'd like to accomplish. And we talk about them. And if we don't have a consensus from the deacons, then we don't move forward with them. Now I say consensus. I say unanimous. And the reason is uh, because as our church grows and we get more deacons, right now we have six. So you have six deacons. Larry's coming on. That'll be six deacons and two pastors, eight people on your leadership team. You know, if, if you've got a seven to one, then you might go ahead with it. To this point, to my knowledge that I can remember, we've never had anything that we've moved forward with that has not been unanimous. But I'm just holding out that as we have more people, it might not be possible to always have unanimity. But it has to be a consensus before that's brought to the congregation for approval. So if the pastor set the agenda, that's run by the deacons for their approval, and then if both agree, then if it's something that affects the whole church, it's brought to the congregation for congregational approval. That's the way it works, okay? So you can chew on that. If you have any questions about it, let me know. Bottom of page 11, sixth of seven vital signs of a healthy church is that a healthy church engages in dynamic discipleship. An effective discipleship strategy is based on the assumption that all believers are disciples and therefore must be engaged in the discipleship process. Let me stop there. So it's based on the assumption that all believers are disciples. That may seem a no-brainer to you, but in fact, uh, lots of people believe that you can be a believer without being a follower. In fact, you can be a believer and you might optionally dedicate your life to Christ later. Lots of churches believe that. So pray the prayer to become a believer to get fire insurance so that when you die, you'll go to heaven. But then this following Jesus thing may or may not come later. Well, it's nonsense. Okay, It's unbiblical. When you come to Christ and you believe in Christ, then you're believing in someone who is not just Savior, but he's also Lord. In fact, Romans chapter 10 says, He who calls on the name of the, do you remember, the Lord shall be saved. So when you come to Christ initially, you're coming to him as Lord. You're bowing before his, him as master and creator and your God. And so you're going to follow him. So our assumption is, and I'm convinced it's thoroughly biblical, is that everybody who's a genuine believer is also a disciple, a follower of Christ. And if you're not a follower, you're not a believer. 
Okay? So the church then will provide a comprehensive curriculum as well as in a relational environment in which for the disciple to learn. The curriculum should include foundational knowledge of things like evangelism and baptism, Bible study and prayer, and systematic learning that's permeated by a biblical worldview. Our discipleship philosophy is based on two basic assumptions, that it must be intentional and it must be systematic. So here's what that means. Uh, It's intentional. We're going to uh, look, when we get to the next lesson, at a page in your notebook, hopefully before we leave today, that shows a bunch of classes that we offer and that we encourage people to take, and they are intentionally ordered. So it's we offer these classes for people to get this foundational knowledge, and there's an intentional pathway for you to go through. And the classes are systematically put together to uh, to offer this a full range of of education in the curriculum that we talked about on the on the previous page. Now, most of you, if you're a believer and you've been discipled. Here's how you were discipled. You were discipled by osmosis. And what I mean by that is you were discipled by just showing up. There was no intentional process for you to go through. You just kept showing up. And you kept showing up and you kept showing up. And you finally learned how to fumble around in the Bible and find books in the Bible. And you learned what some of the lingo was. And if you do that for 20 years, then you will, you know, you'll get the idea. You'll catch on. But I'm convinced that this discipleship issue is so important that it shouldn't be left to osmosis. That rather we should have an intentional way for people to do this. And if we have an intentional way for people to do this, then all things being equal, in three to five years, someone can move from a new believer to uh, grounded in their faith in Christ in three to five years. Now, why three to five years? Um... If you read in the book of Acts and you look at the ministry of the Apostle Paul, the longest period of time he spent in any one city was in Ephesus. And Acts chapter 20 tells us he was there for three years. Paul was there for three years. In Acts chapter 20, when he leaves after three years, this is what he says, I have declared to you the whole counsel of God. Three years. The whole counsel of God. Now, they had some advantages, right? They've got Paul for three years. Um, he was with them. He says day and he worked with them. So he spent a lot of time with them. So th- a lot was accomplished in three years. But do you understand that we have some advantages that they didn't have? Not one of those people had a completed Bible in their hand. Everybody we're discipling gets a copy of God's Word, right? None of them had published material to help them with the discipleship process. We've got all sorts of tools to help us with that. So, as I we put together what someone needs to know to be grounded in their faith in Christ, three to five years you can get that done. And you're going to see in a little bit that in the foundational classes we have, it takes four years to go through them. So hopefully before we leave today, I'll be able to show you what those classes are. And then last but not least, page 12, intercessory prayer. A healthy church engages in intercessory prayer. Anything that is accomplished in the church, God desires and deserves the credit for. So it should be permeated in prayer 
And then when God does it, he's the one who gets the glory, is the idea. Okay? All right. So that's what we mean by a healthy church. Those seven vital signs, that's what we seek to be. Any questions about any of that before we move on to page 13? All right. We want to be a growing church as well. An intentional church, a healthy church, and a growing church. We've seen that we seek to be intentional in our ministry structure. We saw in lesson one our purpose is to help people learn about God, love Him and others, and live for His purpose. Therefore, the various ministries we offer exist to accomplish those objectives of learning and loving and living. So we offer opportunities to help you learn about God. The Bible's foundational to our ministry. Our motto is the family of God built on the Word of God to the glory of God. So our church is built upon the Bible, and we seek to build individual lives on God's Word as well. So here are some of the opportunities. In the Discovering God Hour, that's 11 o'clock on Sundays, we've got our age-graded classes for children, we've got the adults and um, the teens. Our children's curriculum is thoroughly God-centered and parent-inclusive. Our teachers endeavor to make it enjoyable for the kids, but our primary objective is to teach truth about God that results in salvation and devotion. So the parent-inclusive piece is that the teachers uh, send something home with the kids to let the parents know what it is they're teaching and offer some tips on how they can reinforce what's being taught at church at home during the week. Because a lot of times you don't have that. A lot of times you've got the kids get dropped off, the parents have no earthly idea what's going on, and sometimes what's going on in the home is contradicting what those kids are hearing on, on Sundays. So we don't use curricula that a lot of evangelical publishers put out, like um, that just teach kids these practical uh, lessons that you could learn at Boy Scouts. So, for example, uh, some material teaches Jesus feeding the 5,000. Now, what's the hero? Who, what's the point of that story? Jesus feeding the five thousand. The point of that story is that Jesus can do anything; that it all belongs to Him, and He can provide anything. So He can multiply the loaves, He can multiply the, the fishes because He made the loaves and the fishes, and He can do that in your life. I mean, that's the idea. Okay, but a lot of this material teaches kids that this is a story about sharing. And you need to learn to share with your, you know, the kids in your class and your brothers and sisters and stuff like that. Now, does God want us to share? Yeah. But the feeding of the 5,000 is not about sharing. So the teachers are told, look, you know who's the hero of all these stories? Daniel in the lion's den. It's not Daniel. He's not the hero. Uh, you know, when David slays Goliath, it's not David that's the hero. But if we're not careful, we make all those guys the heroes, don't we? They're not the heroes. God's the hero. And you always want God to be the hero, and you always want those kids to come out of there going, God can do anything. God is great. And he used scrawny, you know, shepherds like David and, and people like Daniel and cowards like Jonah and so on. Okay? All right, so that's our children's curriculum. Our high-impact ministry for teens focuses on the development of a biblical worldview. So subjects such as apologetics, origins, ethics, and so on are taught and discussed in order to integrate the truth with everyday life. Uh, in, in my opinion, this is one of the best things that our church has done over the years, is had that emphasis for our teenagers for the 15 years that we've been here. And Larry and Julie Castle have led that for us and really focused in on this. Larry is... Uh, very keen on teaching worldview 
how to defend your faith, creation versus evolution, that kind of stuff. Now, why is that so important for teens? Here's why. Because the teen years are when kids are starting to become exposed to more and more stuff. That's different than what they were taught in Sunday school and in their elementary years. And so as they go into junior high and then certainly through senior high, we now have to be really preparing them to take all that stuff they learned of the Bible in their Sunday school classes and now start to apply that and run that through a biblical biblical worldview so that they can own their faith and stand on their own two feet with it. Now, I say that's one of the best things we've done. The proof of that, for me, is that most of the kids who have graduated now, it was just a few years ago that we started having graduates. Kids start coming up and they're graduating. But most of them are following Christ. Most of them are going to college and they're not losing their faith. They're standing for the faith. And they're, and they're serving in their church. And so we have two of our graduates this year sitting here doing the, doing the same thing. But over the last few years, we've been blessed to have that. All right. Meanwhile, when all that's going on, the adults are in discovering God. So except when we're doing this, I'm in there teaching, and these are the kinds of things we teach. And you see, uh, did we list parenting with purpose there? We didn't. Yeah, yeah, right in the middle. You see those bullet points, parenting with purpose? An examination of the Bible's teaching on parenting. That's the one we're going to start on uh, September 11th. All right, top of page 14. In addition to the regular adult sessions each Sunday, we periodically offer breakout classes for targeted demographic groups. Now, here's what that means. The classes that I just went over are what we have every every Sunday. You've got the age-graded classes for elementary-age kids. You've got the teen classes, and then you've got the adult class. The adult class is literally the adult class, one class. It's normally, that's what it is. It's in the auditorium, and that's the only one we have. And that's on purpose. Why do we just have one class? Here's why. We don't want to break the church up along demographic lines and have permanent classes that are for adults that are age or other demographically oriented. So a lot of churches have every week a a seniors, a retired class. There's nothing wrong about any of this. I'm just telling you why we don't do it. So that means every week the seniors are off to themselves. And they have their own stuff that they do and they have their own classes every week. As a church grows, that smaller group really becomes the church for those people because that's their group. That's the people that they know. And then you've got a young married class, and then you've got a young adult class, and you've got them all, and you've got the church kind of hived off like that. And as a result, you have the church sort of split up along age along age lines. So we don't want that. But at the same time, we recognize that young adults, uh, seniors, these groups have particular needs phases of life that they're going through to which they need to apply what the Bible says and the challenges that go with it. So how do you do both of those? On the one hand, not split the church up, but on the other hand, help them meet their needs. That's what we're saying at the top of page 14, that we have periodic breakout classes. So it's not a class every week, but for example, our crossroads class, that's the young adult class up to age 25. That class will, on average, about three times a year, they will take a, a, a number of weeks, four or six weeks, and they will come out of the auditorium and together 
they will address some topics, some biblical teaching to stuff that's related to them. But they don't do that every week. And then when they're done, they come back in. They come back in with us. Meanwhile, they have their own activities. They have their own fellowships. Uh, Friday night, they had a fellowship, right? You guys had a fellowship over at the mosque. And uh, so they had a bonfire and all of that. Uh, they have fairly frequent uh, fellowships. So you're meeting their needs, but you're not separating them from the overall life of the church. Okay? Near the top of page 14, growth partners. Growth partners is one-on-one um, material that somebody who's either new in the Lord or even somebody who's not new in the Lord but wants to get better versed in uh, Bible and memory and spiritual disciplines. And then we've got Community Institute, and then we've got our worship. Now, um, I'm, gonna, I'm going through that quickly because bottom of page 14, I want us to quickly look at the second of these three objectives. Remember our, our mission statement is CBC exists to help people do three things. Learn about God, love Him and others, live for His purpose. And so the first part there is looking at what we offer to help you learn about God. Bottom of page 14, opportunities to help you love God and, and others. And you see on page 15, A through D there, there's a worship service to help us love God, but then to help us love others, we've just got these settings and these events that really are designed to get you together with people so that you can get to know those people and then learn how to best love them. And then middle of page 15, there's what we offer to help you live for God's purpose. It's training classes uh, in evangelism and in uh, getting involved in, in God's work. If you'll turn to page 16. If you're going to live for God's purpose, it means you not only evangelize, but you also use your gifts and abilities in the work of the Lord. And that's what that bullet point under C is called community service. It seeks to place members in a proper ministry fit. Now, the reason I went through those facts is because I wanted us to spend the rest of our time looking at page 17 and that chart because the chart on page 17 actually goes through a lot of that. So here's our chart on one page. If if you just get this down, then you pretty much know what we're about. At the top, again, you see our mission statement, help people learn, love, and live. But then how does that happen? You see those ovals up at the top, seeking God and finding Him, discovering God, personal evangelism. All we're saying there is people come into the church and come to the Lord through various means. And we could have put 15 of these up with different ways that people come to the Lord. Seeking God and finding Him is a small group evangelistic Bible study that's done in a home. So that's one way people can come to Christ. Another way is they come to one of our Discovering God series. Another way is just they were evangelized by somebody at work or a neighbor or something like that. But however they came to Christ, they come into the church. And when they come into the church, when they get saved, then this is what we do with them. You see those shaded boxes there. They become a member of the church. Uh, They get if they've already been a member of another church, like some of you have been, then and you've been baptized, you wouldn't be baptized again. You would come into membership of our church by transferring from your, your previous church if you're still on their membership rolls. Either way, we would hear your testimony of salvation. And, uh, and then the deacons would make a, a recommendation to the church. And then you've seen us, if you've been around for a while, at the end of a worship service, you'll come up front. I'll tell people who you are. 
and then we'll vote on having you come into membership. But if you've never been baptized, then you have to be baptized in order to become a member. So depending on where you are, one one or the other of those would happen. Uh, we encourage people coming into our church to take these four weeks. That's what you're taking now, the newcomer's orientation. But then you see those next five boxes there. These are many of the classes that we were talking about on the previous pages. And I said that these take four years to go through, so I want to go through this with you. Uh, the fourth box down there, how to get the most out of your Bible, then discovery, then master plan for life. Let me tell you what those are. How to get the most out of your Bible. That's a class that we teach uh, beginning in September, and it's on Wednesday nights. It's in what we call our community institute. So Wednesday nights at 7 o'clock, we have our community institute, and it's got these kinds of classes in it. So I teach how to get the most out of your Bible. And I teach it in the room next to the on Wednesday nights. And it does three things. It gives you a survey of the Bible, uh, principles on how to interpret the Bible, and then how to apply the Bible, those three things. That takes two semesters or one calendar year to go through that. So it starts in September and it ends in the first week of May. In the summer, we don't meet for community institute. So it's one calendar year, but it's not 12 months because we don't meet in the summer. So that's one year for how to get the most out of your Bible. Discovery, notice it's got Roman numerals 1 through 4 there. That is published material that we used called the Discovery Series. And it's got four books that has 12 lessons in each one, a total of 48. Each of the four books is about a particular theme, and all of the 12 lessons are surrounded in that book around that theme. So here's what the four discovery books are. Discovering the Christian life, discovering intimacy with God, discovering your role in God's family, discovering how to share your faith, those four things. So you've got those four books. Each of them has 12 lessons related to that theme, and each of the books takes a semester. Each calendar year has two semesters. So if it's four semesters, that's two calendar years. So you've got one calendar year for how to get the most out of your Bible. You've got two calendar years for discovery. That's three years. And now the next one there is Master Plan for Life. Now that is formerly known as, you guys, Biblical Foundations for Living. Remember that? Okay. That's what Master Plan for Life is. I call it a systematic theology for regular people. Okay? It's, it's theology... It's what the Bible teaches about the major doctrines of God, the Bible, humanity, sin, Christ, salvation, end times, all of that. So it's a systematic theology, but it's at a regular person's level. And that takes two semesters to go through that, another year. So if you're doing the math, how to get the most out of your Bible is a year. Discovery is two years. And then Master Plan for Life is another year. So that's where I get the four years in order for somebody to be grounded. And we encourage everybody in our church to go through this. This fall, uh, I'm teaching Master Plan for Life. So each fall, I'm either doing How to Get the Most Out of Your Bible or Master Plan for Life. So if you guys come, then that's the class you would go into, my Master Plan for Life class. <clears throat> Discovery 1 and Discovery 3 will both be being taught at the same time, so for people who are going through So we constantly have people milling through this thing. And then next fall, 
2017. I'll be doing how to get the most out of your Bible. And we just keep people going through it. Now, after you've gone through all of that, then what? That's the bottom box. Community Institute electives. And we are fortunate to have here Dr. William Combs, who's a retired professor from seminary. And he actually directs our community institute. And he teaches one of the classes. So for people that are done with the foundational classes, they often take the class that Dr. Combs is teaching. We also have a men's class that goes on called Men's Fraternity. So a community institute, there's a bunch of stuff that goes on, but those are the core four years' worth of classes, okay? Now, I skipped one on purpose. You see growth partners, and I had mentioned that on prior pages, that one-on-one thing. What that is is uh, it's a, a notebook of material like you have in your hands. It's 26 weeks' worth of material, just one page for each week. And each week simply has this. It has passages in the Bible for you to read, a verse or two in the Bible for you to memorize, things for you to pray for that week, and then a chapter out of a book for you to read. Now, the book for women is called A Woman Woman After God's Own Heart. And for the men, it's called The Measure of a Man. And what we do is we pair the women with another woman, man with another man, and over those 26 weeks, you go through that stuff. One, you develop a friendship with somebody through that, but you're also memorizing some scripture, you're learning to read the Bible or reacquaint yourself with reading the Bible, gives you a systematic way to do that, Um, and then you're praying about the things that are on there, and then you're reading through this chapter. You get together with your partner once a week or once every two weeks. So this could take 26 weeks or six months, or if you meet every other week, it's going to take you one year. We don't want you to take any longer than a year because we want you to get it done. Okay? But that's between you and your partner. How often is it going to be every week or every other week? And you get together and you discuss what you read in the Bible, any questions you had, uh, what you read in the, uh, the book that you're, you're reading together, and uh, that's what we mean by growth partners. Okay? Now, almost done. In fact, I've got to get done. If you look to the right on that chart, All of that stuff we went through is helping people learn about God. But do you see how that chart's put together with an arrow going out to the right? That arrow's on purpose because it's supposed to show that the learning is to result in... That's the arrow. The learning is to result in this stuff. The more you learn about God, the more you learn to love God. And... The more you see the necessity, the more you learn about the church and God's purpose for us, the necessity of being in relationship with other people. Middle of that is community groups, loving others, and then getting involved in his purpose for you in the world, living for his purpose, community service. So I want to highlight two of those and I'm done. We say that our three objectives are learn, love, and live. Learning is all about, mostly about those gray boxes. But then the major ministry that we have for you to love others and live for his purpose are community groups and community service. Community groups are our Sunday night home groups. We meet in homes, and if you join the church and you're so inclined, and I encourage you to be inclined if you can, then you're assigned to one of these one of these groups. And they meet on Sunday nights for three things, for uh, refreshments, just fellowshipping together, Everybody brings the snacks, chips and salsa, that kind of stuff. Discussion of what was preached the following week. Now, the discussion of what was preached the following week is not discussion of 
Did I like it? Is the pastor an idiot? It's none of that, okay? It's discussing applying what was preached the prior week. And when you come into that meeting, you get a piece of paper with four or five questions on it. And those questions are designed to apply what you heard in the sermon the prior week. You discuss that together. And then the third thing is prayer. So these meetings go on for an hour and a half to an hour and 45 minutes. Roughly 30 minutes for the refreshment time, 30 to 40 minutes for the discussion time, 20 to 30 minutes for the, uh, the prayer time together. So that's what community groups are. They're home groups. And the community service is our ministry to place you in an area of service within the ministry. What we do is when you join the church, we have you fill out a profile of yourself. These are the things I've done. These are the things I know how to do. These are the things I like to do. And then we try to match that to an area of service in the church. Okay? All right. 1203. Thank you for your indulgence. See you next week.